Some would argue, why don't you just wait? Why don't you just wait until you get these witnesses the White House refuses to produce? Why don't you just wait until you get the documents the White House refuses to turn over? The argument, why don't you just wait, amounts to this. Why don't you just let him cheat in one more election? I'm Ezra Klein, and this is Impeachment Explained. I thought when I started this podcast that one of the tricky things was going to be dealing with it in dead weeks, that there was going to be these weeks where nothing happened. And so we were, you know, scrounging the bottom of the impeachment barrel for stories. That hasn't been the case. The speed with which all this is moving is is warp speed. And so I feel like I start every week saying this was a big week in impeachment, but this also was a big week in impeachment. We had the release of the actual articles of impeachment uh, from the House Judiciary Committee. There are two of them, um, not 10, not 15. There's uh, a debate about that we'll talk about. They were quickly considered and then quickly approved on a party line vote in the Judiciary Committee. We'll talk about that as well. And so we know what comes next. Um, and they're happening amidst a bunch of other things happening in American politics, like a trade deal and this question of how things are operating on this emergency constitutional crisis level and then also total business as usual, look at us, we're just governing, is an interesting, I don't want to call it a paradox, but it is a disorientation of the moment. So I'm going to be joined first by Jen Kirby uh, from Vox to talk about the news of the week, and there's a lot of it. But then we have a great B-Block today with Noah Feldman, who is a Harvard law professor, a constitutional expert, but he was one of the law professors who was asked to testify before judiciary on impeachment. So he was there. He was part of this moment in history, and he's got a lot to say. And then finally, I want to talk about the sentence in the articles of impeachment, because there is one that I think is more important than any other. But let's start today with Jen Kirby. Jen Kirby, welcome to Impeachment Explained. Hey, Ezra. Thanks for having me. So this has been a big week. We actually saw the articles of impeachment come out. There were two of them, not 10 or 12 or 15. What were they and why weren't there more? So the two articles that they put forward were abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Abuse of power broadly covers basically the facts of the case. It says that Trump corruptly solicited a foreign power, in this case Ukraine, to investigate his political rival, Joe Biden, and to uh, try to get an investigation into the discredited theory that Ukraine, not Russia, interfered in the 2016 election. And he conditioned that on, you know, military aid to Ukraine and a White House meeting. So that's broadly the abuse of power. And then the obstruction of Congress is for basically the stonewalling of the Trump administration when it came to the subpoenas and document requests. Um, and basically the argument there is that the Trump administration is circumventing Congress's attempt or sole power of impeachment. And the striking thing about that second article of impeachment to me was there's been a Republican argument often made that there just hasn't been enough witnesses testifying. This has been too rushed. And the point that Congressman Schiff made or Chairman Schiff made when he was talking about that uh, article is that he can't get the key witnesses because Trump won't let him, that this is not that they would not like to have this testimony in this investigation, but that they can. And that itself is an impeachable act because it's functionally trying to nullify Congress's ability to hold the president accountable. I'm curious what you thought of that. 
Yeah, I mean, that sort of seemed to be Schiff's argument, and it played into this idea that that's why Congress has to move fast on this, because given the first article of impeachment, abuse of power, and Trump's attempts to kind of interfere in a domestic political election, if they continue to wait to fight the administration to go through the court process, they could essentially not be able to hold Trump accountable for the first impeachable act, so to speak. And these got cleared. There was actually a vote in judiciary this week and these got approved. Yeah. On Friday morning, the House Judiciary Committee voted on partisan lines 23 to 17 to approve the two articles of impeachment, which will now bring it to the House floor for a vote probably early next week. There have been two big lines of criticism from the left on this. And one has been that it's moving very fast. And the other has been that there should have been more articles, that there should have been more on Mueller, that there should have been something about Trump's racism or corruption and self-dealing around, say, the hotels or the people he's appointed. What was the decision uh, Democratic leadership made here to keep it a pretty narrow impeachment? Why did they why did they choose two articles as opposed to 10? I think the sense was that the narrower the focus on this very specific Ukraine scandal would probably keep the Democratic Party as united as possible. And that, you know, there was definitely debate about whether they should expand to the Mueller investigation and include obstruction of justice based on Mueller's findings, whether they should frame what Trump did as bribery, which is obviously in that impeachment clause in the Constitution. And I think the larger sense was if we keep it narrowly focused, keep it close to the facts that we have at hand, especially since we don't have other testimony from some of the key players that might give us more information, that this would basically be the strongest and simplest case uh, for impeachment that would get as many Democrats as possible on board. It does, I think, say something about the process at this point, that it is Pelosi worrying about keeping the whole caucus united. It doesn't seem that Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the House Republicans, has much to worry about in terms of Republican defections. No, there. If, if the House Judiciary Committee and the debate this week on the articles of impeachment um, were any sign whatsoever, there will be no Republican defections. The only kind of sort of defection would be Justin Amash, who left the Republican Party and is now an independent, and he is likely to vote for impeachment. But every every Republican is sticking to the point that not only is it not impeachable, but you know Trump really didn't do anything wrong. Just a wild, wild moment in American <laughs> politics when what he did is not anything wrong. Um, yeah. The other thing that happened here, and I do think it's related to this question of Democratic caucus management, is Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats moved forward on a big agreement with Trump in terms of trying to pass the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade deal. And right now, it is the schedule is that next week we're going to see Democrats fund the government and then probably pass articles of impeachment. And then the next day passed the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade deal. And there's something a little bit odd, at least from afar, in seeing Democrats say this president is a danger to the Constitution and the country. He needs to be impeached and removed from office. And also it is very important at the exact same time we make a huge priority of passing his trade deal and political – one of his central political promises into law. What's the Democratic strategizing on this? I know you've been talking to people over there. Yeah, it's kind of was a real sense of whiplash because they announced the articles of impeachment. Pelosi did 
on Tuesday, I think, if I can remember my week correctly. And then like an hour later, she came back and said, yeah, we've reached a deal with the administration on the uh, United States-Mexico-Canada agreement or the USMCA. And I think there was a real sense um, that a lot of more moderate members, more centrist members wanted something to take back to their uh, constituents, uh, particularly over the holidays, that showed that they could work on a bipartisan level, that they could actually legislate. And, you know, this deal, which had been struck, uh, agreed to originally last year, has kind of been on hold for a long time. And there was some uncertainty, especially in sort of the broader trade war context. And this kind of sealing the deal. And the Democrats did get a fair amount of concessions. Um, You know, the USMCA is not a huge drastic change from NAFTA, despite what you may have heard from the president. But they did get some serious sort of labor protections. They got the unions on board or the AFL-CIO, which is really key. So they seem to have been able to kind of give a win to the more moderate members, which might make it a little sweeter for them to vote for impeachment if they are sort of conflicted about that right now. There's a very strange emotional tenor to politics right now where you turn on C-SPAN one hour and you see people talking about a moment of emergency in the American, in the history of the American Republic, you know, that that we are in something right now, watching this impeachment go forward, seeing no cross-party support for it. I mean, I actually think Justin Moss should be understood as a defection, but nevertheless, Overall, it's going to be a partisan impeachment. What Donald Trump did is very much the kind of thing the founders were worried about. And so on the one hand, you'll you'll turn on C-SPAN and it's business is unusual, right? America is in a political emergency. We're breaking the glass, using the impeachment power. People have to pay attention, hearings. And then you sort of keep watching for a little while. You turn over to C-SPAN 2 and it's all going on as normal. We're going to pass a trade deal. We're going to keep the government funded. Um, the big line you hear from Democrats is they're going to show they can walk and chew gum at the same time. And I'm not saying that necessarily they're strategically wrong about this, but the word used a minute ago, whiplash, I think is right, that it creates this kind of sense, and I wonder if it doesn't for voters too, of is this such an emergency and such a big deal if we already know the outcome and you guys can just keep on legislating in a totally normal way while it happens? I mean, it definitely is a very strange set of circumstances, and I think it kind of underscores the partisan nature of what is going on because every side is so entrenched. Trump will be impeached by the House, but he'll be acquitted or, you know, in the Senate and nothing will happen and nothing will change. But at the same time, I think there is a value in impeachment, even if it has the strange backdrop of continuing to, you know, work on a trade deal or make sure the government stays open just because... It does send a message. No president wants to be impeached. Um, Even if Trump can declare victory at the end, this is still a pretty dark mark on his presidency. And I don't know if we'll know the consequences of that immediately, whether it's, you know, six months from now, a year from now. But in the long run, it is a very strange place uh, for the president to be and for the country to be. Jen Kirby, thank you very much. Thank you. Noah Feldman is a law professor at Harvard Law School. He's, in fact, the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law. Got one of those named chairs. Very fancy. He is the author of a bunch of books, of textbooks. He's a popular writer on legal issues. He has a podcast called Deep Background. But most importantly here, he was one of only a few legal scholars asked to testify in public before the Judiciary Committee on impeachment. He was one of only a few people who was actually not a member of Congress but was part of this incredibly historic process. And he joins me to tell what he saw, 
what he thinks and what he's learned next. Noah Feldman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you have, as a constitutional law professor, studied impeachment for a long time. What was it like moving into the actual practice of it? Mike Tyson famously said that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And there is a little bit of that when you walk into the room and you have to shift gears from thinking about something and studying it and trying to make sense of it and putting that in writing to actually having the television cameras in your face. You basically have to simplify, clarify, and try to take your best shot in the situation. What did you see your role as? I saw my role as trying to clarify for the general public what people who are obsessed with impeachment may already have known, but which is not terribly obvious, I think, otherwise. Namely, what is a high crime? Why do we have impeachment in the Constitution in the first place? And if you apply the basic principles of impeachment to the facts of this case, at least as they emerge from the House Intelligence Report, what outcome is obvious? Why did you focus in your testimony on high crimes and misdemeanors rather than bribery as the, the primary justification here for impeachment? Well, you're asking a great question. And I think the reason is that the Constitution says treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And the other high crimes and misdemeanors therefore include bribery, right? So bribery is a subspecies of a high crime and misdemeanor. But it's not a term, high crime and misdemeanor, that has the same technical meaning that bribery has come to have in contemporary U.S. law. So to my mind, focusing too much on bribery invites the president's defenders to say, well, you're missing this technical aspect of bribery. You're missing that technical aspect of bribery. Speaking, for example, of the famous quid pro quo. And if you just say, look, this is an abuse of power where the president used his office for something of personal gain, that's 100% impeachable, and it avoids some of the confusion associated with the word bribery. One of the things that was striking to me watching the hearing was, particularly among the Democratic legal witnesses of which you were one, this just didn't seem very complicated, that for the president to use the power of his office to try to push a foreign government to investigate one of his domestic political rivals, that's just an abuse of power, and an abuse of power is an impeachable offense. And that almost everything else was crust and efforts to obfuscate, but that at core, this is not the kind of thing that you need a, a long-time legal education to understand. You're completely right. The reason it seems simple is that it is simple. You know, the framers had this one conversation on July 20th, 1787, where they laid out in really clear terms what they were worried about. They worried about the abuse of power by a president for his personal gain to corrupt the electoral process and to subvert national security. That's it. You know, that's why they put impeachment in there. And that's all we really had to say. And I think, you know, a lot of the arguments on the other side are a kind of word cloud of abstractions designed to distract attention from that core element. So, you know, once in a while, the advantage of having studied something for a long time is that you can distill it down to its essence. And this was just one of those cases where it's just not that complicated. I, I want to talk about the word cloud for a minute. Something that was striking to me during the hearing was the attacks that both Jonathan Turley, the uh, lawyer called by the Republican side of the committee, 
and then some of the Republican members of Congress made on trying to understand what the founders actually wanted here. Um, Turley said that channeling the intent of the framers is, quote, a dangerous thing to do. Um, Republican Representative Doug Collins made fun of Democrats, saying they had enlisted the founding fathers as jury members. Uh, Trump himself has called the Constitution archaic. A couple of years ago, the conservative movement at least claimed to be constitutional in its nature, built around a, a veneration for what the founding fathers intended and what they wanted. And now there seems to be, in some cases at least, a pretty sharp turn against originalism. I'm, I'm curious what you made of it. Well, in this instance, it's frank hypocrisy, right? I mean, I think if we went around and polled the Republican members of the Judiciary Committee and said, are you an originalist when it comes to the Constitution? My guess is that 100% of them would say, yes, I'm an originalist, or yes, I would support judges who are originalists. So, you know, it's not like the Republican Party has actually walked away from originalism. And what's more, if you look at the Federalist Society of cho chosen judges that the Trump administration has put on the courts of appeal, they all profess to be originalists of, of one kind or another. And by the way, that's not necessarily a bad thing that they come from the Federalist Society, because you have to ask yourself, if they didn't come from there, where would they come from? And I'd much rather have Federalist chosen smart conservatives than crazy people. But, you know, so the first point is that they really do believe in originalism. They're just being hypocrites in this instance. The second point about it is that it's not that hard to figure out what the framers thought about something they explicitly talked about. You know, what makes originalism a difficult theory to use sometimes is that there are issues that they really didn't talk about. They didn't talk about abortion at the Constitutional Convention. They didn't talk about handguns and the rights that would emerge from contemporary handguns. They didn't talk about iPhones. They did talk about impeachment. They did talk about the abuse of power. They did talk about re-election and how it's not a good enough remedy, which is why you need impeachment. So when the framers were on point, you don't have to be some kind of a deep originalist to rely on what they said. And as a one last point, because I'm not an originalist, like I don't think that the Constitution's meaning begins and ends with what the framers said. But I do think that it begins with what the framers said. Like I'm a living constitutionalist, which means that you start with the framers and you figure out if their values, beliefs, and opinions are still relevant today in light of the evolution of the Constitution. And it's definitely the case that it's still relevant that a president could abuse his office for personal gain and distort elections. So you don't have to be an originalist to rely on the framers here. One of the things that you've heard often from Republicans in this process is that the effort to launch an impeachment process to impeach President Trump is a coup. It's an effort to overturn the will of the electorate. When you say the founders had conversations, had a theory of why you needed impeachment above and beyond the remedy of elections, which, you know, we'll have an election next year. What What, what is the argument there? What can impeachment do that an election cannot? So I'm super glad that you asked that, because actually the way the conversation started on July 20th, 1787, was that two of the framers who were there actually put a motion on the table to take impeachment out of the draft constitution. It was already in there and they made a motion to take it out and they gave a reason for it. And their reason was, well, gee, this is a democracy. We have elections. So if you don't like what the president is doing, just vote him out of office. And when that happened, a number of framers, four or five of them, made very strong and convincing arguments for why just having an election wasn't enough. And the core argument was, which is the one made first by a man otherwise obscure to history called William Richardson Davy, who was the governor of North Carolina, was this. He said, if you can't have an impeachment process, the sitting president will use any means whatever within his power to get reelection. 
And then the others repeated this in various forms. If the president can use the power of his office to distort the election itself, then there's no way out other than something like impeachment. And what's remarkable is that's exactly what Donald Trump was trying to do here. And to some extent, he's succeeding. He was trying to get Ukraine to announce investigations of Joe Biden that would harm Joe Biden as a candidate. And lo and behold, Joe Biden is already being harmed as a candidate. And that affects Trump's reelection options and possibilities. One thing I've come back to a couple of times as I've been reporting on this story and, and, and trying to understand it is the famous George Washington farewell address about parties. And I'm of the school that thinks that dress is in some ways uh, overestimated in American life because in some ways it was itself an, a partisan attack on the Jeffersonians. But nevertheless, he makes an argument in there that if we had parties, we would lose accountability. It would create space for foreign governments to interfere in our elections. And something I keep thinking watching this go on is how true that appears to me to be now, that with the incentives of partisanship, giving Republicans as much reason to protect Donald Trump, it has created a zone in which various forms of corruption can flourish, in which foreign intervention can flourish. That is very much something that the founders predicted way all the way back when in what at times even seemed like their most overheated pronouncements. And so I'm curious as a sort of student of the Constitution, whether you think that this level of partisan polarization that we have now, and particularly the way the Republican Party is operating within it, has just created a challenge that the constitutional structure does not truly have a mode of resolving. So I agree with both parts of, of what you said, Ezra. The first is that Washington's farewell address, which we treat and which a lot of people treated, not me, but a lot of people treated in the hearings as kind of like a piece of American scripture, was actually kind of partisan. And specifically, his attack on, you know, the possibility of foreign entanglements is his argument for why the United States was correct under his presidency of basically abandoning the treaty that we made with France where we promised to come to their aid if they got into a war with England. So those of you, uh, those of your listeners who've listened to the Hamilton musical will remember the exchange about this in the musical. But essentially, Washington abandoned the French on the theory that he had made that treaty, the United States had made that treaty with the French king, and the French king was now gone because of the revolution. So he was attacking the Jeffersonian Republicans who were pro-France. And of course, they were attacking him and Hamilton, the Federalists, for being pro-British. So first, I think your point is extremely well made, and this is an environment where we can make it. You can't really make that on national television in the middle of a hearing. With respect to your second point, yes, the framers did not do a good enough job of creating a constitutional structure that would actually stop partisanship from distorting our politics. They knew about parties, they worried about parties, and they tried to create what the great historian Richard Hofstadter once called a constitution against parties. Madison thought he was wrong, but he thought at the time that the Constitution was being drafted that he had found some magic solution that would stop political parties from arising. And he was just wrong about that. And the result is that the Constitution is vulnerable to situations and the polity is vulnerable to situations where party gets really deep. And I think you're right to say that just as in the, you know, the very late 18th century, there was kind of a pro-France party and a pro-England party. Now, to some degree, the president's wing of the Republican Party looks like a pro-Russia party. And in this instance, the United States had a policy that was pro-Ukraine, which meant we were anti-Russian. And that, I think, is part of what's going on here. Now, it's complicated by the fact that most Republicans won't say anything good about Russia, um, although President Trump is willing to say good things about, about Putin. 
So there's a kind of disavowal going on at senior Republican levels. But yeah, the political parties open the United States up for sure to alliances with foreign countries that can go against national interest. As you were sitting on that panel and you were being questioned by Republican members of Congress, what did you hear in that questioning? Did, did you hear an argument? What is the strongest version of the argument you heard, the one that you found, if you did find it in any way, convincing? And what are the argument or arguments you heard that were more worrying to you on a constitutional or just patriotic level? Well, here's the Republican argument that although circular, is not ridiculous. And it's this, it says, you know what? Impeachment is a very divisive thing for the American public. And so Congress should only impeach the president if there's some bipartisan consensus that the president's done something really terrible because it's costly to the country. If we go to the Senate, you know, on a, on a basically a straight party vote, and then the Senate acquits the president on basically a straight party vote, it discredits the phenomenon of impeachment and we can't save it for when we really need it. So that on its surface is actually, a, it's a good argument. I mean, it is true that impeachment is divisive and it is true that we want to save it for really bad situations. The problem is in this instance that it's really circular because the Republicans are themselves making this a partisan issue by closing their eyes to the wrongfulness of what President Trump in fact did and offering kind of fake arguments about you know, how he really was interested in corruption, which I think, let's be honest, I think Republicans know that's not true. They know that they're just sort of, it's a make weight argument. And so the result is that it's Republicans who are making this partisan. And if Republicans are going to make it partisan, then you're never going to be able to impeach anyone if you have to wait for something bipartisan. So I think that's both their best argument and also their most circular argument. The thing that worries me the most is an argument that very few Republicans want to say it openly, but I think they're falling back on it increasingly. And that is the argument that even if Donald Trump intended to get personal political advantage by demanding these investigations from Ukraine, that's fine and it's not impeachable because, say, it might not be a federal crime today. Right? That, to me, is genuinely dangerous because then they're defining deviancy down. You know, Then they're basically defining an impeachable offense to exclude conduct that is profoundly dangerous to the union, to national security, and to the nature of democracy. And they're saying to Donald Trump, go ahead and do it in the future, and that's bad enough. But they're also saying it to every future president, go ahead and use the office of the presidency to gain personal political advantage in upcoming elections. And that's genuinely destructive. And that is the part that makes me actually somewhat afraid. I want to note something on the, the partisanship argument you made. One is that it is a common thing in American politics, and I think a quite destructive one, that bipartisanship operates in the public mind as a kind of external condition that would come into play if the underlying question was reasonable. That I've seen a lot of political science polling and survey data on this, that people believe that if the parties were operating in the common interest and people were playing things on the level, that things would be in general bipartisan. And partisanship often means that something has gone wrong in the process. And Republicans, I think Mitch McConnell is a particular master at this, have been very capable at recognizing that they control a resource by partisanship, which the public often understands as something that is not a controlled resource, but a but a but but a but condition you can watch for to judge whether or not a given proceeding is something that is supportable. And I think that disconnect between what who controls bipartisanship and then what the public takes from it is actually quite dangerous. Um 
I guess in some ways it connects to something that you heard from Turley and others, which is, and and this seems to me to be a very similarly circular argument, this idea that, well, there's not been a good enough process here with enough witnesses testifying. But on the other hand, Donald Trump is a reason those witnesses won't testify. So you can't go forward on impeachment without more testimony, but you can't get the testimony because the president won't let you. And it sounds reasonable until you recognize it's functionally an argument for nullification, an argument where the president can only be impeached if he is willing to be impeached. All those things strike me as things that, if you're not paying super close attention, are very confusing. But as a precedent or as an approach to American politics, are actually quite threatening. I think you're right, and you know your your really profound first point, Ezra, about um, how people think of partisanship. We we all have this kind of eighth grade civics ideal, which is a nice ideal that everyone in Congress is at at base kind of reasonable, and if the circumstances are such. There'll be bipartisanship because, after all, reasonable people can can all agree on something. But that's not the way party politics actually works in the real world. And, you know, the, the tension there is between the idealized picture of our system and the idealized picture of our Constitution, which we kind of rightly teach 13 and 14 year olds, and then the real world political reality, which is much more brutal, much more violent and, you know, much more inspired by the idea, you know, associated really originally with the Nazi political theorist Carl Schmitt, that when it comes to politics, it always comes down to friends and enemies. And that's, you know, that's a disparity. You know, you don't want to teach kids that. You don't want to teach kids that here's one political party, here's the other political party, and they fight it out in the arena for for more power. And that's what it comes down to. You want to teach kids that there's a possibility of partisan bipartisanship because you want them to aspire to that. But there's some gap between our attractive picture of how the world should be and the slightly less attractive picture of how democracy really works in real life. Sometimes the way I think about this is, imagine you came from Mars and looked at democracy and trying to decide if it was a good idea. Or imagine if you were you know, a smart young person working for the standing committee of the Communist Party of China and trying to figure out whether China should democratize. And you asked yourself, like, how does it really work? The way it really works has a lot of imperfections. And political parties are a central part of the imperfection of democracy. But you've got to be honest about how it works. You've written that the biggest problem the Democrats are going to have in the impeachment inquiry is not finding evidence of a quid pro quo, which largely the Trump administration released on its own, but is sustaining momentum. Can you talk about what you mean by momentum and how it plays into this? Yeah, the momentum challenge is they're not going to be, it seems almost certain now, any more significant revelations in this story. And in fact, there haven't been that many revelations from the beginning because this had the weird feature of being whatever is the opposite of a slow burn. I guess it was a fast burn. You know, like someday if they want to make a podcast about this, you know, long, you know, narrative podcast, it's actually going to be kind of hard because it all started with the culmination, which was the phone call, which was released relatively quickly. So once you had that phone call, you knew there was an impeachable offense. Like the evidence is right there on the surface. And so what that means is that it's hard for the news cycle to be sustained because people already know what happened. So all these witnesses appear. And yeah, we got some more details about what happened, but we still had the basic story of, of what happened. The whole thing is being told in reverse. There's no narrative climax here. So that's a problem for keeping people's attention. You know, then we had, you know, a day of hearings that I participated in of some law professors of whom I was one talking about why the Constitution matters here and trying to be clear about it. But that's a one day blip. And then um, subsequent to that, um, there's been some testimony from committee staff, which is not exactly totally fascinating because, again, it's all stuff that's been out there. And then the Democrats are going to 
you know, most likely draft articles of impeachment and most likely pass them. And then it goes to the Senate for a trial where most people know that the odds are overwhelming that the president will be acquitted. So the momentum problem is you can't create narrative flow when you already know the facts up front and when the outcome, the probable outcome, is sort of out there for everybody to see. What does it mean for American politics if the president is acquitted in a situation where the facts of the case are so clear? To my mind, it's actually very dangerous and bad for American politics if and when that happens. And, you know, I think most reasonable people think it is going to happen. So I should probably just say what when that happens. I think what's bad about it is that, again, it opens the possibility that future presidents will say, well, I can do this and get away with it. Now, it's better from my perspective if the Republicans just pretend that the evidence is fake and say, this never happened, this never happened, this never happened, and acquit him, than it is if they say, okay, he did it, but we don't care, and we're acquitting him anyway. You know, it's that old expression that hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. You know, the hypocrisy would be better here, because at least it would mean that Republicans were saying that it's wrong to use the office of the presidency to subvert elections against national security. If they don't say that, it's a particularly bad outcome. So I think the consequences are bad. So bad, in fact, Ezra, that I recognize the argument, the rational argument, that it was a mistake or it would be a mistake still to impeach the president because if he's acquitted, it will make it look like this conduct is okay. The problem is that after the call was made public, if the Democrats in the House did not impeach the president, then they're the ones saying that it was all okay. And that definitely is, is bad. So I think in the end, the Democrats have no choice but to impeach because the conduct is so public, so overt, and so obviously a violation of high crimes and misdemeanors. So they kind of have to do it. And then we sort of have to hope that the judgment of history will be that they were right and that future presidents will not think that an acquittal means that they can do the same thing. You had a column last Friday about your testimony. And you said, on the one hand, you've never received so many warm and supportive messages, but you also had a fascinating experience to be subjected to truly bizarre and spontaneously invented conspiracy theories. And then you said, that's a topic for another day. Well, today is another day. And I'm curious <laughs> what kind of conspiracy theories you saw emerging and what just being at the center of that process in real time taught you about how that sector of the ideological informational ecosystem works. So I didn't know it when I was up there because I didn't have my phone and I made a point of not checking my phone during my testimony because I, I, I didn't want to know what was going to be there. But somewhere in the middle of the day, someone hacked into my Wikipedia entry and wrote falsely that I'm a nephew of uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Now, let me just say for the record, unequivocally, uh, my mother is an only child. My father's name is Feldman and he has one sister. I am not the nephew of Jeffrey Epstein. I have no relationship to Jeffrey Epstein. Never heard of him, no relation, nothing. Um, but you know, we live in a world where people can just make an assertion like that. And then everyone else who, who subsequently writes about it says an unfounded assertion or you know a false assertion. But then there, there it is, then they're repeating. I mean, I just repeated it in, in order to refute it. So, I mean, that's genuinely weird. And it's the kind of thing that, I suppose false rumors are as old as the Republic, but the idea that you could put it in a place like Wikipedia almost instantaneously, that it takes some time for it to be taken down, and then there's no sort of department of refutations for stuff like that. So that's the that's weird. Um, and you know, then of course people try to de develop it, and somewhere on Twitter there was a, a photo of me taken in the beer garden 
at the Standard Hotel in Los Angeles on the rooftop deck. They have a beer garden, or at least they used to. In 2013, the one time that I was ever there, and I, you know, I was holding two beers in my hand, and someone took a picture of me. And they said, oh, you see, the Standard Hotel is, you know, connected to child abuse rings. I mean, I had never even heard that crazy conspiracy theory. But, you know, it's sort of like Pizzagate. And you used to be you had to be sort of a presidential candidate before people subjected you to these kind of insane rumors. And now you could just be anyone who happens to appear, you know, on television talking about something that's related to politics. So that was weird. That was strange, you know, and I don't think anyone really believes it. But it's still an experience to be subjected to it. I, I should add, by the way, that in a sense, I got off pretty lucky. Um, Professor Pam Carlin of Stanford, who also appeared on the panel with me, came in for much more hate, much more online abuse. Um, and I think mostly because she's a woman. Um, and I think the degree of misogyny that's out there, you know, dwarfs uh, the anti-Semitism and lots of other forms of abuse that are that are out there. I think it is genuinely weirdly an example of privilege only to be, you know, accused of weird conspiracy theories compared to to what Professor Carlin has had to deal with. Given how many photos exist of Donald Trump with Jeffrey Epstein and the fact that he spoke about him during his career, so they clearly knew each other and Trump seems to have known about some of his predilections, the idea that this is a, that connections to Epstein are something that conspiracy theorists are trying to weaponize against people on the left is just genuinely bizarre to me. Like somebody photoshopped a, a picture of Adam Schiff and Jeffrey Epstein, but they're just real pictures of Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein going around. It just says something fascinating to me about the conspiracy theorist mindset that the point is not that you need something that is true. The point is that you need just enough because you already want to believe something is true. I think you're right. I also think, and I think this is relevant to our to our moment, historical moment. There's two kinds of conspiracy theories, right? There are people who, because of the tenor of their mind, are prone to see connections where they don't exist, and that might lead them to, you know, lean on the evidence. I call that naive conspiracy theory. Then there's cynical conspiracy theory where people just make stuff up. And if you're just going to make stuff up, it actually makes some sense to take the worst thing that can be said about the person you support and just say it about the other side. You know, you just literally turn the tables by saying, you know, I'm not a puppet. You're the puppet. Right. You know, whatever it is, you turn around, then you flip it onto the other side just to deflect attention. Um, and then you're creating this kind of profound sense of confusion. And ultimately, that kind of cynical conspiracy theory does not expect that people will believe it. It wants the opposite. That kind of cynical conspiracy theory is aiming for a world where we don't believe anything we hear. Because if we don't believe anything we hear, then you won't believe the accusations against their guy like Donald Trump. It seems to me in a way to bring this conversation into a bit of a, a full circle here, that the way in which conspiracy theory can operate there, where it can allow you to believe almost anything, operates as a kind of mirror to the way partisanship creates a nihilism, where you recognize that there is nothing to believe in because the outcomes are preordained. The fact that, on the one hand, knowing the way Republicans would act in this makes for a reasonable argument that maybe you should never even try to impeach a president because you're never going to get anywhere anyway. It, it's a it's a, almost a similar version where you don't have to believe anything because you can choose whatever to believe, right? The way in which on the one hand, your beliefs are incredibly circumscribed. And on the other hand, they're incredibly expansive, both in a direction of just like as an outcome of this level of partisan warfare. It seems to me to be, maybe it's been a dimension of all times, but a particular one of our age. I think that's true. I think 
it raises a really interesting question, which is, did the framers make it too hard to get an impeachment? You know, I mean, we almost got Andrew Johnson impeached, but again, that was partisan. And in the end, it was just that some Republicans defected that that he saved him from impeachment. Bill Clinton was acquitted, for better or for worse, largely on partisan grounds. Richard Nixon might be the one exception, and he quit before he could be impeached, presumably because he saw the writing on the wall, and he, he knew that a bipartisan impeachment was going to happen. But the reality is that because the framers didn't fully anticipate just how pervasive political parties would be at the national level, they may have made it too hard to get anybody out of office by setting a two-thirds you know, a two-thirds barrier. Now, you can make the counter-argument that impeachment is very rare, it shouldn't be used too often. If it could be done within the bounds of party sentiment, then we'd have all kinds of impeachments. They would happen all the time, and it wouldn't work. And framers were, after all, so prescient. But that's sort of like special pleading, right? The framers just didn't fully take on board the consequences of partisanship. So, yeah, I mean, we live in a moment now where the partisanship is really bad. And every time it gets bad, this happened you know, clearly, you know, at the end of the framers' own period in the 1790s, it happened again in the run-up to the Civil War. When the partisanship gets really bad, things really start to break down. And you look at our democracy and you say, gee, it's not really functioning very well. And in that sense, impeachment is, you know, it's the it's the it's just the canary in the coal mine. It's the thing that shows you that our politics is to some degree temporarily broken. And the only thing I think that I can say that's optimistic is we usually bounce back. I mean, we don't always bounce back. The Civil War actually happened, and we didn't bounce back from that for a long time. But in the late 18th century, we did bounce back from the partisanship, and we got what was famously called the era of good feelings. And I think we probably will bounce back this time, too. It's just going to take a little while. Professor Noah Feldman, thank you very much. Ezra, thank you so much for having me. Something you may be tempted to do having listened, for instance, to an entire podcast called Impeachment Explained, is just assume now you know what is in the articles of impeachment. And I, I wouldn't do that. This is nine pages. It's not very long. Um, and it's big font. And because it's Congress, it has huge margins. Like It's like they're trying to – every le- piece of legislation or resolution is written like they are trying to like fool the professor about how long it is. So it, it, it's short. And it's well written. And it's a historic document. And I urge you to actually read it. But on page five, I think, is a clause that is more important than anything else in the Articles of Impeachment. Most of it is very straightforward. You already know it. But on page five in the second paragraph, it reads, President Trump, by such conduct, has demonstrated that he will remain a threat to national security and the Constitution if allowed to remain in office. That, to me, is the most important clause in this whole thing. Impeachment can be understood simply as punishment. Donald Trump did something before and it was bad, and it was wrong, and he should be punished for it. That is not, to me, either the strongest or most important function of impeachment. What Donald Trump has done is exhibit a pattern of behavior that shows that if he gets away with this, he will keep doing it. Remember, this all came after the entire investigation into collusion with Russia, where Donald Trump felt, you know, rightly or wrongly, truthfully or falsely, that he was being persecuted. It was a witch hunt. Um, There was an entire investigation run by Robert Mueller. There was an argument that there should be impeachment given the obstruction uh, that Donald Trump was shown to have done in the aftermath or during that investigation. But here's the thing about the Mueller investigation. It did not prove collusion. It didn't. Maybe there was. Maybe there wasn't. But it did not prove it. It did not find that evidence. That was the reason why I and, and others did not think it was actually a strong basis for impeachment. But as soon as that was over, Donald Trump turned around 
And he did exactly what he was accused of there. He didn't just collude. He extorted. He tried to get Ukraine. He tried to get a foreign government to interfere in the American election on his behalf. And it is, I've said this before, it is so easy to have imagined it working. It is so easy to have imagined that we woke up one morning and on the front page of the Washington Post and the New York Times was the announcement that Ukraine had opened an investigation into Joe and Hunter Biden. It is so easy to imagine it having worked. It almost did work. We know that President Zelensky had begun to schedule a CNN announcement. It only stopped because the scheme began to leak and it became a liability to do. So here's the thing. We have seen this play out before. Donald Trump was investigated for collusion. And when he got away with it, he upped the ante. He doubled down. That became his strategy. He turned to Ukraine and said, I want you to do this for me. Do me a favor. And if he gets away with this, why does anybody think he won't do it a third time? Why does anybody think he maybe already hasn't done it a third time? This is not just a punishment. This is prevention. We are not just trying to punish Donald Trump for what he did. We are trying to protect America from what he will do. We are trying to protect America from a president who has shown he will abuse his office to make sure he maintains power. And who has shown that the lesson he takes from getting away with it, even if it was a closely run thing, is that that means he can do it again. That means he can escalate his tactics. Something that Professor Feldman said that I think is quite profound is that this isn't a hard version of the case. This isn't a place where you need to go searching through the mists of time or running some kind of seance to imagine what the founders thought. This is what they were trying to prevent. Presidents who will abuse power to keep power. Presidents who will abuse power to amass power. The evidence is clear. The evidence has been admitted to by Donald Trump in the call record his own White House released. And if he gets away with it, if Republicans let him get away with it, let's be clear, if Republicans let him get away with it, there's absolutely no reason to think he won't do it again. What, what Congress will have done in effect, acting as an institution, although driven by a single party, is to say to Donald Trump, you can do this and there will be no true consequence. You might feel bad that you were impeached. It's a black mark on your record. But we are not going to say this is beyond the pale. In fact, Republicans, his party will protect him. And then imagine, oh my God, imagine if Donald Trump gets away with it and then wins in 2020 after that. Imagine what he will feel able to do going forward. So again, I want people to pay attention to this clause. Page five of the nine-page Articles of Impeachment. President Trump, by such conduct, has demonstrated that he will remain a threat to national security and the Constitution if allowed to remain in office. That's what should ring in all of our heads going forward. Impeachment Explained is a Vox Media Podcast Network production. I want to thank, as always, Cynthia Gill for engineering, Roger Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing and editing. Our theme music is by John Natchez. Our EP is Liz Nelson. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can check out my other podcast, The Ezra Klein Show. This week, I spoke with Paul Krugman, uh, in part about impeachment, but more broadly about policy going into 2020. We've got a climate change series there if you want to think about some of the things that we are not making progress on, because instead we're talking about impeachment, because instead... We're trapped in this timeline and not another, but we will be back on this next week. Mm -hmm.